Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I'm Cecil Giskin. I'm, uh, I teach in the English department here at UC, UC Berkeley. And I want to thank, first of all, all of you people for, uh, for, uh, for coming up here, uh, braving the elevators uh, you know, this, uh, this afternoon. And I thank the, uh, I thank the panelists uh, for, uh, for, for being here, the, uh, the poets to my left and to my, and to my right. And I, I, uh, I want also to thank the, uh, the Lippmann Family Foundation for the gift of this beautiful room and for their support for this, uh, for this project. And I wish to thank the Department of English for their, for their support, for our support, uh, and the Berkeley Institute for the Environment, especially Inez Fung and Dan McGrath, and also the, uh, the, uh, the Townsend Center. All of these, all of these groups and organizations and, uh, and people have, uh, have helped produce this, uh, this very, good, very good moment. And Camille. I echo all those things. My name is Camille Dungy. I'm the editor of the book that we're here to celebrate. And I thank all of you for uh, coming out today to join us for this discussion. What we're going to do, we have a series of questions that we've circulated to the panelists for them to think about. And we'll start with one and then move forward in what we hope will be a free-flowing conversation. Many of the questions and ideas that I'm hoping, as the editor of the anthology elicits, will lead from one to the next in the conversation. So what we'll start by doing is very brief introductions from each of the panelists who can tell you themselves who they are and what their conjecture is about why they might be joining us today. So again, my name is Camille Dungy. I'm the editor of Black Nature, Four Centuries of an African American Nature Poetry. And it was my great pleasure to work actively for three and a half years on consolidating this anthology by pulling together as many representative poems as I could find that showed a broad range of African-American views on the natural world. And over the course of this afternoon's conversation, we'll discuss what that what that range might reflect. I'm a poet myself. I teach at San Francisco State University in the creative writing department. I'm Bob Hess. I uh, teach both uh, American poetry and uh, courses in environmental studies. And I've been excited about this anthology since I first heard from Camille that she was contemplating it and beginning to work on it. For all the obvious reasons, it's enormously important if we're going to do the work of the Berkeley Institute of the Environment to do the work of in the humanities of beginning to think about how we teach in ways that can bring sustainable communities into being is make the widest possible set of, of connections in order to understand where we are and where we've been. And uh, nothing speaks more across an, an idea of a divide than a conversation about black nature poetry. I, I mean, it's, to say a short thing to begin, it's very interesting that it's slightly counterintuitive that there would be an anthology of African-American poetry about the natural world. 
I think I understand the reason why, which is, has to do with the fact that um, 92% of all African Americans in 1900 were living in the country. And over the course of two massive migrations, one between 1910 and one, 1930, another between 1940 and 1970, something like um, 80% of African Americans came to be urban dwellers. And that also happened at the moment of this first great explosion of consciousness in, of, of African American writing in the Harlem Renaissance and of the explosions of music and art that made African American experience seemed the quintessentially urban American experience. So that's one of the reasons, and the reason it's counterintuitive, of course, is that over the course of these 400 years, it was mostly African American work that transformed and made the shape of the American continent. So there's a very rich conversation to have here, and connections to begin, begin to be teased out about the past and about the future. Um, hi, my name is Evie Shockley. Um, it says here uh, <laughs> I'm an assistant professor of English at Rutgers University in New Jersey. I uh, teach African American literature and creative writing, uh, poetry. Um, so I am a poet. Oh, uh, my first book is called The Half Red Sea. And I have a book forthcoming, which I'm very excited about uh, next year. I am also a scholar of African-American poetry, and I think one of the reasons, if I'm supposed to speculate why I'm here, is uh, <laughs> uh, one of the reasons I'm here today is, is because um, I guess about six or six and a half years ago, I went to a symposium where I was presenting a paper on Ed Roberson's work um, and offering the um, then sort of unprecedented idea that he was a nature poet. <laughs> and have been working um, on his poetry, um, the work of Ann Spencer, a, a woman from the Harlem Renaissance, uh, who also is known for writing about nature, and um, a third poet, Will Alexander, who's also a California poet, um, as nature poets in a, in a book on the relationship between black aesthetics and formal innovation in African-American poetry. So. Um, I have a great interest and a great appreciation for this anthology's presence um, as a scholar and what it means, what it documents, um, the, the, the kind of um, primary work that it does that I now don't have to um, sort of do from scratch and can use this as a, a reference point um, moving forward in the, in the kind of scholarship that I do. So that's enough for an opening. I'll pass the baton on to Ed. Could you say it? I'm Ed Roberson. Um, I'm the uh, uh, distinguished artisan residence at uh, Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, uh, and I've, I'm basically a poet writer. And um, I started out writing what I thought were just regular poems, and I thought the nature poems were regular poems. And then you find out that's not exactly like that. I was really, really uh, excited when uh, Camille came and said that she was going to finally put all this work together, uh, all the other poets who had been writing nature poems, tree poems, and uh, had those things sitting on their desk, 
and only being able to get your CD poems published. So this is really a fine thing for me since I spent the first years of my college education in the field, working um, across Canada, up Alaska, and uh, out on the uh, 12 miles off the off the reef in Bermuda on the ocean. So this is really nice to, to have Camille put all this stuff together for us. My name is Al Young. Uh, I have been present for a good deal of the 20th century. I was a, <laughs> I was a part of uh, those migrations that Robert Haas uh, alluded to. Uh, born 70 years ago, 1939, on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, Ocean Springs specifically, at a time when the majority of Americans, 70% of Americans, uh, either lived in rural settings or in small towns. A few years later, those demographics would shift dramatically uh, with the migrations not only of of, uh, black Americans, but Americans uh, from the south uh, moving north and moving all over the country from uh, rural settings into uh, urban settings so rapidly that at this hour there are more people teaching in colleges and universities than there are people farming uh, in the United States. One of the campaigns, one of the missions that I have passionately uh, pursued is to get people to recognize that poetry is more than a mode of personal expression. Uh, Traditionally, uh, it was used to memorialize, to record history, uh, to teach all kinds of things, practical things, how to to make wine, how to uh, grow oxen uh, or chickens. Uh, It was used, of course, worshipfully. Uh, All of our sacred books, of course, are written in poetry. And it wasn't until a couple of uh, hundred years ago, the advent of the Industrial Revolution, that uh, the first person I fell into poetry in a big-time way, and and no one's been able to dislodge it since. And so that uh, you have generations of people who just think of poetry as as a medium for personal and subjective uh, expression. Nothing wrong with this, but uh, there's room for a lot more to be done. Uh, Our planet is in peril I don't have to tell you. And I pay a lot of attention to things like chaos theory and complexity theory and Gaian studies, uh, all of which have in common uh, the idea that uh, all living things share a call and response uh, process. In the early 70s, I read the book uh, The Secret Life of Plants, which... uh, still in print. It was made into a terrible movie with a score by Stevie Wonder that you can, you can go out and look at on YouTube if, if you so desire. But uh, the book came about in a, in a memorable way. Uh, there was a, a husband and wife uh, polygraph team working for, I believe, the FBI in Washington, D.C. And one day bored with uh, putting their little uh, electrodes on human beings, they put them on office plants just to see what would happen and got some very interesting uh, results. Uh, they couldn't believe it at first, but the plants seemed to be reacting to you know, ambient uh, sounds and, and actual thoughts that they were having. And one day they made an amazing discovery. Uh, uh, the husband was shaving. They were working on a Saturday. 
he was shaving in the uh, office uh, bathroom, and he cut himself. And the polygraph registered this, you know, red uh, uh, quivering, uh, quivering in the red zone. Uh, the plant ostensibly had, had recognized uh, his pain. And eventually they found that the plants not only reacted to human beings but to each other. Their conclusion was that there is this network of communication uh, uh, between all living things. Now, this was, uh, this was sensational when the book came out, and people said, wow, never knew that. Uh, that was also the time when uh, the, the fashion of using music uh, to control plant growth uh, came into vogue. Our ancestors knew all of this. I think that uh, uh, libraries of wisdom have been lost to us because of a mindset that kicked in, oh, I'd say about three or 400 years ago, uh, when the idea that human beings were at the center of things and everything else was, quote, objective reality. So that it is through the arts, I believe, that uh, we can find our way back to uh, this wisdom that uh, is lost to us now, and we're very much in need of it. Because we are rhythm and energy, uh, physicists say that we're, we're constantly oscillating on and off, and that we're off more than we're on. I could have told them that. Uh, music, art, dance, poetry uh, affect us in ways that we don't fully understand yet, and I hope we never fully understand how it happens, because that, that's another mechanism for control uh, potential. So I take a very big, uh, big look at these things, and I would encourage people to read um, James Gleick's uh, Chaos, The Making of a New Science, and a book by uh, Stephen Buhner, uh, B-U-H-N-E-R, called The Lost Language of Plants, in which he speaks uh, at great length uh, about the ways in which he gets his students to uh, experience uh, the plants around them, people who don't believe in what he's talking about, he, he, he assigns to them the task of just hanging with the plant and recording what kinds of things they pick up. And then they'll take out a botany book, and this naive person has picked up things that the botanist has uh, studied in a systematic way. Once again, I'll repeat what I said last night about Dr. Uh, George Washington Carver. Uh, when he was asked how he learned so many secrets uh, to the peanut and other plants. He said, you get down on the ground and talk to them, and they'll tell you everything you need to know. Hi. Um, I'm Carl Phillips, and um, I, um, I'm the author of 10 books. Um, 11th one is coming out next year um, of poems. And let me see. Um, why do I believe I'm here? Um, um, well, I think, I'm pretty sure that I've never written a poem that didn't in some way engage with or mention uh, the natural world. It's never occurred to me that there was anything unusual about that, actually. Um, and although I teach in St. Louis, I spend most of my time in um, relative wilderness. Um, so I think that's why I'm here. But uh, Camille will let me know otherwise. Fine. <laughs> Hi. Um, hi, I'm Carolyn Finney. I'm the one non-poet here on the table. 
perhaps. So. <laughs> I'm not sure I was going to say. I don't know what he means by that. I hope that's good for me. That's oh, okay. Uh, I'm a geographer. Uh, I am in the Department of Environmental Science, Environmental Science Policy and Management here at Berkeley. Uh, I am here for a number of reasons. One, about, I guess, a month or so ago, I saw this book on Amazon.com, and I got it. I didn't know anything about what was happening here. Uh, my uh, most recent research in my first book is called Black Faces, White Spaces, African Americans in the Great Outdoors, so looking at our collective uh, stories about our experiences in the environment here in the United States. Um, and so in terms of call and response, the book called I'm Responding. Uh, I do want to challenge someone on the end who said that in some ways it's counterintuitive actually to write a book about um, black nature. And I would say, no, it's not. <laughs> uh, we, I think, you know, when someone else said, you know, there are more people teaching than farming. And, you know, I always ask my students, I say, are you breathing? And most of them are. And I say, well, you're in nature. We're not separate from it. And so I like to think that our stories just haven't been heard and just haven't been told, or we just haven't been listening in the right way. So I'm interested in this conversation to keep growing those stories. Okay. <laughs> Harriet, who are, who are you? Okay, I'm Harriet Mullen, and I uh, do teach African-American literature, creative writing, and American poetry at UCLA. I'm very happy to be uh, included in this particular uh, event. I had not really thought about my work in terms of uh, place or the natural world or um, landscape, particularly in more recent years when I feel that my work is much more engaged with language itself. Uh, in some of my earlier work, going back to it, I see that partly because I was living in Texas, and Texans seem to be hyper-conscious of where they are, that they, li uh, they live in Texas, and that seems to be a big deal to Texans. So I, I think that I, um, I, I was a little bit more conscious of location and uh, where I was, also because I wasn't born in Texas, uh, and I, my roots were in Alabama. But that was a place where I really had very little memory of. So my connection to place has always been quite tenuous, and that does have something to do with the mobility of my family. And I think of my family and my ancestors in some ways as uh, people who actually, in some ways, discourage travel. Uh, travel is quite practical. You go travel for education, for a better job. Uh, you travel for funerals and to visit relatives. Uh, I can recall that when I told my family that I was uh, had an opportunity to go visit Paris, this is some years ago, and they in unison said, oh, no, why would you want to go there? Um, so, and the idea that you could just... You met Paris, Texas? You, they might have. That might have been the problem. But uh, so I think that in some ways, um, you know, there are traditions that you learn from your family, from your community that can make you feel more or less attached to the earth that you're standing on, that you feel that you do or do not belong to the place where you live uh, and the place where you work. And I think those are issues that Camille definitely has used this um, anthology to explore and her two essays that are in the ex uh, anthology also explore this idea of how do we connect to the land in a way that 
uh, nourishes both us and the land. You know, when in, t- in many times historically our connection to the land was one that involved, um, you know, unpaid labor, oppression, segregation, discrimination, all of that, uh, not to mention uh, racial violence. Um, so those are some things that are interesting to me. I think about the fact that uh, my mother is and always has been, as long as I can remember, an organic gardener. And that the last time I spoke with her on the phone, I asked her if she planted her garden yet. She says, well, you know, I've got the seedlings in the greenhouse. She has a little plastic indoor greenhouse. They're in the greenhouse, and I'm looking at the farmer's almanac for the right phase of the moon when I should put them out there. And, um, and that my grandfathers on both sides, my mother's father and my father's father, were both farm boys who could not wait to get off the farm and into a town or a city. So all of that is behind my sense of, in some ways, disconnection from land and from place and from nature as we often think of it in nature poetry. Thank you. Thank you, panelists. I would, I would like to, to start things off, to start the actual discussion off, to, to, to revisit uh, something that Al Young said a, a couple of minutes ago. He said that, that poetry, or he pointed out that poetry is, is much more than a mode of personal expression, which I think is very useful for, for us all to remember. I would suggest to you that, that poetry also has a, polit- has a political weight, whether we wish it to or not, a conscious or unconscious weight. With that in mind, I would, I, I might, I'd like to bring up the, uh, one of the questions that we, we, we emailed to the, the panel uh, a little bit ago, which is what is the place of this, of this anthology in the, um, in the environmental consciousness movement? What's the politics, implicit, explicit, around this? the anthology right now in a survey uh, course in African-American literature that I teach at UCLA with undergraduates. And uh, one way that we're using it, because we are reading uh, other genres, we're reading novels and short stories and drama and autobiographies as well. So um, I normally use a poetry anthology in this course, and this, so this is the first time I'm using this one. And one of the things that has really been striking to me is how we frame our poetry really does uh, indicate to students and to readers in general how is the poetry supposed to be read and interpreted. And uh, so the students in my class, they all are um, assigned to give a five-minute poetry presentation. They have to choose a poem uh, from the anthology and talk about it. I gave them very, very minimal instruction about how to do that. I told them to think about how the poem looks on the page, how the poem sounds when it's spoken. Um, what can, do you know or can guess or can find out about the poet? And how would you place this poem in some kind of aesthetic, social, or historical context? And one of the things we have really discussed quite a bit often is, when is it appropriate to do the black reading of the poem? Uh, because a lot of times the, they leap immediately to a social or political um, me- message that has to do with, well, black people are always oppressed. Black people are always 
deprived, black people are always victims, and black people are always urban. And uh, so these kinds of uh, perceptions or assumptions guide how they read poetry. And so sometimes we have to slow down and say, well, what is the poem actually saying? You know, is this poem saying what you think it's saying? And maybe it's saying something quite different. So that's something that I'm really excited about, is having another framework for reading African-American poetry. Uh, one of the byproducts of the creation of a black poetry anthology is that we select poems that we think are black, and we select poets that we think are black poets saying black things about black experience. And uh, so the same poems often are anthologized over and over, the same poets. I'm so happy to see new poets. There are poets I don't even know. And usually when you know I'm teaching in a fairly contemporary poetry anthology, the students are surprised because I know all the poets. And now I have to tell them, well, you know, I, I actually don't know that poet. <laughs> so that has been very exciting for me. Yeah, I, see the, uh, I see Camille Dungy's anthology uh, as a another nice brick to heave through the glass house of institutionalized propaganda. Uh, Alison uh, Deming, a uh, very fine poet who writes uh, poems about science and co-edited a, a book called The Colors of Nature, uh, to which I was a contributor. It's an anthology of uh, essays about uh, ecology and uh, ethnic diversity. Society always acts out its true beliefs so that when you get situations that are commonplace in America, like toxic waste being dumped into low economic neighborhoods or into black neighborhoods or Latino barrios, uh, you start to see what the society really believes. When you hear the word environmental or the word ecology or ecological, uh, a lot of people that I know think largely of white privileged people uh, taking part uh, in these activities. It has very little to do with African Americans or Latino Americans or people uh, whose incomes uh, are modest. And the essay that I wrote for Alison Deming's book is called Silent Parrot Blues, uh, which talks about, uh, describes a parrot shut up in an apartment building that I lived in, in uh, Palo Alto, and uh, the owner of the parrot, who had gotten him from Uruguay, was a rare bird, didn't see any need to bring any light into that room, or uh, just to feed the bird and, and, and to water the bird. I was talking to another inhabitant of the building, who was a Vietnam vet, uh, dead now, named Roscoe, and Roscoe said he read the piece that, uh, the notes that I was uh, writing uh, for this uh, contribution, and he said, Al, you need to go down to the Palo Alto City Council and talk about this. He says, you got the chops to do that. I said, what would I tell him? He says, man, you know what you, you, you figure out what to tell him, but you know that these white people care more about that bird than they do us, so they would listen to you. So that was a, that was a, a very shocking uh, revelation uh, to many people. Uh, you can find the book and read what I had to say. But uh, what I like about uh, black nature and what I like about poetry in general is that it's, it's always, uh, as Cecil, uh, Professor Giscom, uh, is indicating, it's always political whether you uh, recognize this or not. Poets who decide that they're not going to be political are taking a political position. 
Uh, having traveled uh, to many places where writing a poem can get you in jail or get your head cut off, uh, I see very clearly how we handle that in our country. Uh, we have the most effective form of censorship that's evolved. That is, we let people say anything they want to say, and we ignore them completely and move on to something else. I just want to say, I mean, the, the sentence, the, the question was phrased, uh, the environmental consciousness movement and uh, consciousness, and one of the ways that I understand that is practice thoughtfulness and attention. And so if the question is how are we, how, does, how, how do the poems in this book start to help expand the, the realm of who can be seen in the environmental consciousness movement, it, it's always been important to me as a woman and as an African-American and as a, a fair number of other um, other realms that I've occupied in my life <laughs> that uh, a poet, you know, <laughs> uh, et cetera, that, that my presence be something that I attend to and that other people around me can attend to. That, that this book started largely because I was actively out involved with a community, uh, uh, an organization called the Association for Study of Literature and the Environment. And I was speaking on a panel in conjunction with Asley, consciously, actively reading poets, poems as a poet who writes about the natural world. And the fabulous editor at the University of Georgia Press just mentioned in passing, I, I never really thought about African Americans writing about the natural world. So this was the acquisitions editor of the press who had not seen, who had not been conscious of this presence. He said, do you think you can pull together a few more poets? There are over 90 poets in this book, almost 200 poems, and there are more that I could have had without the limitations that we have with the publishing industry, et cetera, et cetera, which we won't get into. So part of what it means to be involved in a consciousness movement and help to establish a broader room in a consciousness movement is helping to change our consciousness, <laughs> helping to change who we see and how we see them. And so that the poets in this book are writing about sometimes alienation from and explaining that alienation, sometimes attachment to and explaining why that attachment might look different than your attachment. And my hope is that young readers, older readers can see in this book themselves, can start to see their concepts of the world mirrored in a book, in the pages of the book, which validate then your ideas and al allow you to continue and continue to and continue and expand. I see in this audience several writers and workers and activists that I know are doing the same work of opening up spaces for people of color to say, we are here, we've always been here, now look at us, become conscious of us. We cleared all this land and raised all these crops and built all this stuff. <laughs> another thing, another thing um, that becomes clear in looking at the poems of this anthology, but it's not, it's true in general, I would say, of, of poetry, is that the natural world is, is very often the space within which individuals start to reflect or meditate on their place within the world. 
which can lead to poems that risk um, annoying Al, um, uh, the kind that might be a little too self-involved. But um, I think that many of those poems, what happens is, you know, in the course of meditating upon one's self in relationship to the world, that involves other people. And it seems that the natural world is so often a catalyst for getting us to think about ourselves and each other. Um, and it's all the more reason, I think, to sort of see it as sacred. These poems seem reminders of that. I just wanted to um, sort of add to pretty much what most of you have said, but uh, Camille, you got me really thinking about the idea of consciousness as practical thoughtfulness. And I have to say, when I saw the book, and you know, I'm always Googling black people and environment. I do it all the time just to see what comes up. And so that's how I found the book. And when I started telling people randomly, I'd say, oh, there's this great book, Black Nature, Four Centuries of African-American Nature Writing. And, and I didn't have the book with me, and people would say, four centuries? And then I'd have to, well, maybe four decades? No, four centuries. You know, we've been around for a long time. We have a lot to say. Uh, for me, the book really is, gives us an opportunity to think about how we frame the way we think about who thinks about the environment. And it's something that some of you were saying earlier about how we have the conversation in particular in this country, and it really changes that. It also, for me, when I think about the creative process, you know, and if I think about the creative process and black history around the creative process, often what black people express comes out of pain, but also what comes out of joy and it comes out of love. You know, it's not always painful, it's not always difficult, and that's equally as important. And finally, I want to say, it's not just about the black experience, it's about the human experience, mm -hmm. and that everyone can speak to that, and there's a lot of ways to hear that. And so for me, I'm just real excited that the book is here. I um, would like to add something to um, what Camille was saying that, that's in what she said, but to foreground it a little bit more, I think, uh, you know, I'm looking in this room... Um, a number of African Americans and people of color who obviously already care about these things, as do the poets in, uh, in this volume. But um, I can certainly speak to the fact that there are people in the African American community who themselves feel that nature is irrelevant to their lives and who um, don't see a role for themselves in uh, an environmental um, consciousness movement or um, poetic uh, uh, echo poetry or any kind of an environmental um, approach to, to, to life and to social action. And um, what I love about this anthology is that it redefines nature um, in a way that um, I, I keep referring back to Ed Roberson's poetry because it was sort of the beginning of my interest in this um, in so many ways, so I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, it does what I had seen his poetry to do, and that is to um, force us to, to, or to ask us at least, to stop speaking of a natural world as opposed to whatever other world there might be. I don't understand what that is after reading this book and, and poets in this book. There is our world. And um, this book's work, in part, is to, um, to give people in the African-American community myriad ways of seeing how that is true and how their experience is 
inscribed in this, um, this, this need to protect the world that we live in. Um, and so I, I think that's a, an important part of its politics, making, making black nature visible to African Americans as well as um, others. Um, I taught um, this book uh, this semester also at Northwestern. Um, one of the things that I noticed is that uh, I was getting students who were, had already taken a little bit of Wordsworth, taken courses on pastoral. But then by the end of the term, we discovered that they hadn't actually read that material. Uh, to read an American pastoral or to read American nature work, you, you're not reading the birds that are in, 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 uh, in, in Europe. You're reading the people that are in this country. So if you talk about trees, then you have to get a sense of talking about American trees. And American trees had ropes in them. So that whole business of, uh, that sometimes the students come with as a nature poem is something beautiful and ideal and almost like fantasy. You so, sort of can tell them that that poem has had to grow up and you're the process of it having to grow up by understanding all the things that, was, that were left out of the understanding of that nature poem. So you read a poem that talks about uh, how wonderful the land is. Well, that land happened to have our people tilling it. How bountiful the land is? Well, yeah, it was bountiful, but who worked it and who the paid for it? And those kinds of things are underneath the, uh, the, the, the simple pretty poems that they read, and then you discover that those poems will grow if you reach down and get to that layer that is African-American under that poem, that poem that's been read and hidden. Read that along with the poem, and you get a much deeper poem. So I'm just saying the opposite of what Harriet said. Uh, what, what you're doing is you're actually going back and reframing uh, nature writing, not, not just for black folks, what, what you've been taught in school is nature writing. Now with this anthology, you have to look at the whole other la- layer that's been left out and reread that stuff. One of the things that I... I've, there are a few things that happened in the process of uh, or, organizing and editing this anthology, which can roughly be described as me being cheeky and, um, <laughs> and, and just kind of poking fun at some of the conventions of, of nature, poetry, and writing. And one of them was that I made a point of actually including a shepherd. Uh, he's, a, he's a contemporary of mine who's a poet who's, who's a shepherd. Uh, his, first, his first job in Milledgeville, Georgia. And so the, the pastoral tradition relies on a fantasy of the life of the shepherd. And I have this black young man, 16 I think at the time, writing about the real life of a shepherd, which is not quite so bucolic as in the dreams of the pastoral poems. And so that, that was an extreme version of the poems in which I placed the workers in the speaking roles, and that they are not speaking through amanuenses, they're speaking. They're the poets. They're the authors of their story. And so it shifts and changes, as, as Ed is saying, the way that we understand these rustic, bucolic, pastoral traditions when the person who's actually has had the responsibility of tilling the soil and caring for the sheep is the one who talks about this world. On that, on that note, on that note um, you're, talking, you're talking about conventions. You're talking about the challenge, the challenge to the, uh, to, to the pastoral, to, to received, received notions 
of, of what, um, what, the, what the pastoral might be. And indeed, as some of you have said also, what, uh, you know, what, it, what are the conventions of African, African-American writing? And I'm, I'm, hearing, I'm hearing Harriet's voice in this. What, what does this anthology do? How does this anthology speak you know, to those conventions of African-American writing, the things that we're supposed to be doing? How does the anthology uh, challenge those or define them or, uh, or, re- or redefine them? I'd like to say something. <laughs> um, Professor Finney. <laughs> I, uh, and I've, uh, some of you who know me know, have heard me say this before. There was a uh, book written in the 60s called Black Rage, and it was written by uh, two black psychiatrists about the black experience, broadly speaking, in the United States. And one of the phrases that I like that one of the psychologists or psychiatrists always said is, you know, in the 1960s, it was black is beautiful, we're proud to be black, we suddenly sort of took ownership of what it meant to be black in a really positive way. But they also asked the question, have we shrunk our ledge? The idea, can a black person be uh, French, you know, love French literature or study French cinema, for instance? Are we still black? What does it mean? And so... One of the things I like about, in terms of, I can't talk about the conventions of African-American writing from someone who is a writer in the traditional sense, but I like to think that we don't know all of who we are and who we can be, and so what this offers us is a reminder that we're actually more than we may have limited ourselves to thinking we are. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it reminds (laughs) other people. um, I, I... my work often is not included in African-American anthologies because, as someone said to me one time, well, you're not black. And that was a surprise to me. And so, um, and, and I thought, I, I've always, um, and it's, that's led me to sometimes be uncomfortable with the label of being an African-American poet because I think, well, if that seems to mean one can't write about love, um, morality, nature... Um, and so it's exciting to be part of this anthology because it does sort of start opening up those assumptions and and suggesting that it's it's not even the it's it's not that it's a movement it's that we've been writing this way all along and um, that the experience is broader and it, it's a reminder sure there is an urban black experience um, but. Uh, that's not the only experience. Now, what we're really talking about is culture. Uh, we keep using these terms, black and African-American and American and all of that, but we're talking about culture. And a story uh, that impresses itself on me at this moment is an account that I read in the L.A. Times about uh, a woman who wanted to take uh, some of the gang kids, uh, gang bangers, uh, camping in Los Angeles in South Central L.A., and everyone thought that she was absurd, but she managed to raise a few thousand dollars, and she took these kids who were, you know, always killing each other and running dope, all these things that we are all too familiar with, on a 10-day camping trip, and it completely changed uh, the kids. They'd never been camping before. They'd never been out in the wilderness and experienced that kind of thing, and they were awed by it, and she came back and wrote about it. If I had known that I was going to be telling the story, I would have gotten her name, but you can probably Google it down if you're 
persistent. So that uh, we live in a culture that thinks of uh, environment, nature as being apart from us, and traditional peoples uh, worldwide never made that separation. I think it has something to do with the Western dichotomy of uh, body and soul or body and mind, which is a very unfortunate deviation that was made a few hundred years ago. Uh, medicine is starting to try to recover from that. You cannot separate uh, mind from body. Uh, you cannot ignore the fact that the heart is also an organ of perception. So I think we're in an era where we're being forced to bring uh, all of these uh, things back into integration uh, in order to save ourselves, really. And it's a cultural bias that has us out on this limb, as it were. My, 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 Al, my argument has, has, has been for a while that in that, in that body-mind dichotomy, in, in, in the, public, the public eye of the, of the culture, the way in which black people appear, we're, uh, our, our bodies are, are kind of paramount. Uh, our bodies have a huge, a huge weight in public, That's right. public consciousness. And, uh, and in historical consciousness. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, history, yeah. History, we, don't, we don't leave history behind. History is present. Yeah. It's, all, it's, all, it's all right there. It's interesting to me the ways in which history you know, continues, that what happened in the past continues to happen in people's perceptions in the, uh, um, in the present. And, and this, I, I, I think, is, is possibly why in, in the public mind of the, of the culture, you know, we're not supposed to be nature writers because we are. We are nature. You know, we're primitive. We're, uh, we're, you know, we're jungle. We're exotic and, and erotic. And that's, that's sort of... I, I don't have to... Re- I, I don't think there, that that requires any response. I think you've put it out there. And, yeah. It's a but statement I, of fact. But, I, but I, my thought is that this anthology is presents a, a, it, it makes it it, uh, it makes race, it makes blackness, as Carl is saying. I think necessarily in public. This is important in public. You know, much more complicated than than it, it, it's been it's been before. There's a poem in the anthology. I just want to read just at the beginning of it. It's by a poet named Gerald Barrick Sr., who I think is another one of these poets we, do, we haven't heard enough of. So it was a pleasure for me to be able to forefront some writers who I think are, are underappreciated anyhow. The poem is called To Waste at Trees, and you might be able to figure out a time period in which it was penned. Black men building a nation with a capital N. Black men building a nation, my brother said, have no leisure like them, no right to waste at trees, inventing names for winds and weeds. But it's when you don't care about the world that you begin owning and destroying it like them. And how can you build, especially a nation, without a soul? And he goes on, right? And so within this poem, even in that early period of trying to define are we black and what black means, there's this poet who, I think this might be part of why we don't hear as much about him, said, wait, wait a minute, I, I don't want to disconnect that part of my being from this other part of my being, this part of the process of building and regenerating a people from this other part of who we can be. And because he wrote like this, I think, is part of why we don't hear as much. And so to be able to to be reminded that for, in this case, 30 or 40 years, <laughs> and much longer than that, but in that case of that particular poet, there has been this this argument and this frustration about this dichotomy, which is 
both an externalized dichotomy but also an internalized one and that we need to work with that fact. It's also, sh- it's also shattering uh, to realize, uh, if you're paying attention, that we live at a time when something called extraordinary rendition uh, is a commonplace. And it's practiced largely uh, by a, how shall I phrase this? It's, it's, it's carried out against people of color. If, if you've noticed that uh, the, the people that we invade and the people that we inta- attack are not Europeans. Uh, they are people of color. Uh, we think nothing of whisking someone from one place to send them to another place to be tortured so that we can technically say uh, we don't torture. And in a sense, I, the way I see it as a poet is that we're doing to each other uh, what we've been doing systematically to the earth uh, for a long, long time now. So uh, we're, we as a country are expressing our beliefs uh, in that policy of extraordinary rendition. Uh, it is brutal, it is ignorant, and it is ultimately destructive uh, of the country that, that perpetrates it. So poetry collected like this, I think, gives us a tool for trying to understand uh, how, it, how it's come to this. I happen to think it has to do with the economic system, the corporate uh, way of thinking, but that's my own opinion. But uh, I think there's just a lot, as you go through these pages, you run into poems of all kinds that, that look at uh, what we term the natural world from uh, a myriad of perspectives. And I think that it's, it's invaluable and at this hour uh, for people to uh, contemplate uh, what these poets are saying. Well, what are these poets saying? <laughs> okay. And uh, all of us, all of us in this anthology... And I'm, you know, Camille was, was gracious enough to include, include some of my work as well and to even ask me to write an introduction, which I, uh, which I, which I did for one of the sections. But as, as I said a couple of nights ago when we were, when we were first gathered, when we had, uh, had dinner together, um, what the anthology does for me as an African-American writer is that it makes me feel somewhat less singular uh, not, not deep in my heart, you know. Because I mean, in my, you know, deep in my heart. I mean, I've been, I've been reading, I've been reading Sterling Brown for a good long time. I've been reading Gene Toomer for a, a good, a good long time, and other people, other people as well. I'm, I'm, um, I read, I read for the natural world. I look, I look for it. It's a, it's a very, very old, old thing with, with me. It goes back to when I was in single digits. But, um, but it feels to me, I feel less singular uh, publicly. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's been a value, a value for that with, uh, with me. What does the anthology mean you know, to, my, to, my, to my fellow um, uh, fellow writers who are included in it? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to y'all as African-American poets? <laughs> or or as, as American poets? Ed. One of the things that uh, Al has talked about is that, that division, uh, the, the man-made world and the natural world, and how effectively the corporate system keeps that thing in place. Uh, when, I was, when I was coming up, there were a couple of times in my life where I, where I was actually food. I'd be in the jungle and realize that we had crossed the territorial lines of a jaguar. 
So we had to get the hell out of there, realize that we were food. We could not boss that thing around. It lived there, not us. Uh, it's to the point in Alaska where we, we found ourselves in a position with some uh, uh, um, the big-headed ones, Kodiaks. Found ourselves in a position with the Kodiaks and a mother. You have to realize, you know, that uh, you're not the boss all the time of that stuff. That you, you can you can be you can be eaten. You're there to you're there to be eaten. That that, that those couple of times actually um, changed that idea for me about where I belonged and about being able to get into nature. There was no getting into nature. I was already there, you know, and all I needed was salt, you know. So, <laughs> but. What, what, we, what, what I think one of the things that the anthology does is really bring up the point that uh, there are ways to get away from the corporate picture and get back to the, the, your, the feeling of yourself as being part of something that is really big, something that is, is even beyond your idea of big, and the place that you have, the little tiny place that you have, how important it is, but how small it is, and the responsibility of that tiny thing to that much larger thing. I think what the, what the anthology does is over and over and over again point out that, that black folks are trying to get back to that connection with us in nature, whether it's us in nature, a job in a corporate, and then find our way. We're always trying to get back into in, a, in our history here in the country. But that getting back into is always sometimes much larger than just getting a job, much larger than just getting back down south. You sort of learn that getting back down south, the moccasins will get you too. So, so. Jeremy Rifkin's uh, book, uh, Jeremy Rifkin's book, uh, Time Wars, is one that I value. Uh, he, he tracks uh, at book's length uh, the history of our concept of time uh, the idea of the hour and the minute and the second and how they came into being. And the idea of the schedule is, is um, something that came about in the uh, 13th century uh, among Benedictine monks with the uh, development of these big municipal clocks. You know, the idea that we'll all meditate at this time, then we'll go out and work at this time and so forth. That idea did not exist until then. Now we're into the nanosecond. Uh, corporations control time uh, in, you know, one-minute commercials and 30-minute segments and 60-minute segments. And we think and uh, we conduct our lives uh, in that, with that sense of time. But the book's conclusion is that as we get away from circadian time, from natural biorhythms, from the rise and fall uh, of the tides, uh, the seasons... Uh, menstrual cycles, uh, as we get away from the, the, uh, that kind of a time, uh, we become increasingly neurotic. And I'll, I'll rest my case right there. <laughs> we are neurotic. One <laughs> thing <clears throat> I would say is that there are several implicit threads or explicit uh, arguments uh, running through this uh, volume both in the poetry itself and how it is collected and arranged, and also in the essays, particularly the introductory essay that Camille has written. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, she has made it more than obvious that uh, the connections uh, that link African Americans to poetry and the written word 
uh, to the natural world. This, these connections have been hiding in plain sight for 400 years. Um, and also that we, at least I, have to think about myself and um, my community, um, my race and all of that in terms of not just um, oppression and deprivation, exclusion, but also in terms of pleasure, power, and privilege. I think that uh, many of the issues that come up time and again in this work have to do with how our imagination of nature in terms of how we value nature, how we use nature, how we uh, exploit nature, and how we visit nature in our leisure time, if we have leisure time, has to do with notions of privilege, of possession, uh, of power. And I think that uh, it's not just about smelling a flower. It is also about who owns land, who controls what happens to natural resources, who has the political power to, uh, to uh, either um, start or stop development. Uh, those things have to be discussed as well. Poetry, poetry can say things <clears throat> that are so much more powerful than, um, than vernacular speech. Uh, this is the beginning of a poem by Myron Hardy. Jaguar, the poem is called Jaguar Ripe. That's one word, Jaguar Ripe. Everything begins with a hill where a church bar is built, a city founded. Our legs thicken to those of mules as we carry clay to the top. The roads rolling down slope into town, cobblestones where dirt peaks until the next rain. The pain of place is without end, backs mighty as earth. All of this so a girl can sit on her porch, a red ribbon in her hair matching her Sunday skirt. That's just the beginning of that poem. Now, you know, it would be almost impossible to analyze what's really being said there, but you're with it, you're, you're into the picture there, and you know intuitively uh, where the poet is going with this because this is our, this is our secret self that he's uh, describing. And, and I've always loved the magic of poetry, uh, the, the ability of poetry to transport us to these invisible worlds that are always, always with us. So through the vehicle of poetry uh, and this book, uh, you're able to imagine uh, a landscape and a, a physical world that is it's not always apparent. I think poetry is better than television. Uh, going through this book is better than watching PBS shows on nature, uh, which are quite biased, and, and uh, I won't get into that right now. But... but but you'll have a lot more fun uh, reading about nature uh, th through these poets than you will through watching a, do a documentary. Yeah, Al, you know, I'm, I'm not going to let you get away with that. What, what, you, 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 they're, they're quite biased. And uh, can, you, can you talk about that? Because yeah, that, 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 that sounds I'll, interesting I'll to me. I'll talk about it very, very nakedly. Um, um, a, a lot of the uh, public television shows on nature are sponsored by, you know, Mobile and Exxon and people like this. And uh, they have very strict policies about what they want you to discuss in these programs. For example, you will not see 
uh, in one of their nature shows, uh, a mountaintop being uh, blown off, excuse me, so that they can get to, uh, get to the coal that's, uh, that, that's underneath that mountain. Uh, everything is kept in a very namby-pamby, kind of sweet, cute little puppy uh, <laughs> level. Working together for the environment, that sort of stuff? Yes. Okay. yes. How do I know that phrase? <laughs> <laughs> Professor Finney. <laughs> uh, I kind of want to connect to that, but I want to go back to you sort of put this question, what does the anthology's publication mean to you as an African-American poet or as an American poet? And I'm not a poet, traditionally speaking, but I am African-American, and uh, I am American. So one of the things I think about is how often we as Americans aren't always comfortable to talk about what that actually means. And that some of us as African Americans are really not comfortable with talking about what that means. And for me, the book really is an opportunity to see people talk about what it means to be an American, not just to be black. Um, uh, I think about my parents. I think about my parents with a 12th grade education. You know, Oprah talks about growing up, there's poor and there's Poe, and my parents were Poe. Uh, and working somebody else's land for 50 years, and then I get a chance to go to the college and see the world and can tell a different story about what it means to be an American. Their experience of being American is not quite the same as my experience. Uh, when I read through some of these poems, that there's a wide variety of experience of what it means to your be an American. Your story is here and also your yes. story. Yeah. Yes, sir. <laughs> it is. Uh, also, I want to say that I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to read this, but one of my favorite poems in here that I like, I just want to read the end, is one that Audra Lord wrote on called The Bees. And of course, I didn't mark it, which is, you know, not very helpful. But what I can tell you about... Can tell you I can tell what you. What page? It's in, the, it's in the pest section. Because <laughs> I want to read the end. Uh, Pests People Too is the title of that section. Oh, no, that's the Brown Minnesota poem for survival. Thank you. Sorry. I've got to pull on the glasses because I can't see anything. There it is. All right. 78. She got it. All right. It's in the section called Dirt on Our Hands. Sorry about that. Yeah. So it's, it's long, and I won't read the whole thing, but she talks about... Uh, in a street outside of school, there are little children playing, there's a flock of bees, um, and the boys are throwing rocks and they're smashing the windows, and this is pissing off the bees, and so they're buzzing around, they get a little crazy. That's my interpretation. Uh, sorry, this is my interpretation. It's always going to be my interpretation. Anyway, <laughs> let me continue, Mr. Al. Um, <laughs> Anyway, my interpretation, and I nothing but respect for Ms. Lord, uh, that you know she's talking about the bees and this experience and the honey's dripping, but there's also an element of destruction here, and she uses the word destruction, that they're trying to maybe protect themselves from the bees or stir up the bees. But at the very end, there she says there's some little girls. One girl tr cries out, hey, the bees weren't making any trouble, and she steps across the feebly buzzing ruins to peer up at the empty, grated nook we could have studied honey-making. And what I like about this is, is um, the possibility of something different. And I 
have told some people a story. There's a black woman in Chicago who studied, who started an organization called Sweet Beginnings because she, there were previously incarcerated black men and women who couldn't get a job, and she thought, well, why don't we train them to make honey? And it has a very successful company making urban honey. Uh, and so for me, there was a real connection in terms of what's possible. I mean, there may have been other things that she was saying, but what I read in here was the possibility in terms of what it means to be an American today and what can we think of for tomorrow. So I hope I didn't. No, All right. I just, had, uh, I just had a very spirited conversation in my office with one of my students, and she was pointing out the similarity in some respects of this poem, The Bees by Your Lord, and also Nikki Giovanni's poem, The Yellow Jacket. Mm-hmm. But then her next step was to immediately say, this is about black people fighting white people because the bees and the yellow jackets are the white people. <laughs> And I said, well, okay, what if neither poet was black? What would you say about this poem? You know, could it be that they really are interacting with bees and yellow jackets? (laughs) And she said, well, that's what it literally is, but metaphorically it's the white people. So, I, you know, I said, well, maybe we can give it the black reading, but let's try giving it a reading that has to do with what is literally happening in the poem before we leap to that next level Mm -hmm. to say what is political about the poem, what is social about the poem. And bees and uh, ants and yellow jackets often are associated with human communities for a reason, you know, for their cooperative labor and so forth. You know, sometimes in positive ways, sometimes in negative ways. Uh, The hive, you know, is sometimes seen as a dehumanizing way of thinking about whole groups of people. But at the same time, let us look at the poem for what it says on that literal level of, I'm out in my backyard putting water out for the birds. I want to welcome the birds. I'm not welcoming yellow jackets to my (laughs) bird bath. You know, so we got into it. And that is something that I appreciate about this anthology also, is the chance to have that kind of conversation. What's also interesting about that poem, um, The Bees, is that, and it never occurred to me to look at it as (laughs) white people, Um, but that's exciting. Um, But it's interesting when you mention about the hive being a community, and it's a very gendered community, the hive, and the, the males being the drones, and and yet in that poem, it's the boys who are the destructive ones and destroy the hive. It's the girls who have the perception to see that there was another value in maybe having studied that community instead of destroying it. So it's a sort of flip about gender issues, which is also exciting to see um, that that too can be a black poem, um, that it's not exploring race necessarily, but maybe gender, um, and not in necessarily black gendered ways whatever those might be I'd rather not say what they might be that's a whole other panel yeah I I, I would actually be curious about um, your perception of, of one of the surprises that I had in the process of checking my compilation process because certainly I opened anthology after anthology after anthology and didn't see African-American writers represented, you know, in general, but certainly not in the big 
big nature poem anthologies. Uh, what, Cecil got a similar number to me. It's something like in the top five nature poetry anthologies, there are maybe four or five African-American writers. It's always it's Alice Walker and uh, Marvin Gaye. Isn't it? Yeah, Alice Walker, Marvin Gaye, and Langston Hughes' uh, Negro Speaks of Rivers. Right. Um, and, and so the, you know, this is one of the reasons why I, I knew that this anthology had to happen. But the other thing that I frequently don't see is, is women or a representative number of women. And so it was important to me that I had a, a essentially community representative number of women, about a 50-50 uh, over the course of the book. And I also had, a, within each section of the anthology, I had a... a pretty regular representation of different time periods, pre-1920s, 1920s to 1970s, and post-1970s. Except for one section of the anthology, which is a a section called Growing Out of the Land, which is a a section about people really claiming a stake and feeling a feeling of sense of ownership in the land. And that section was the only section where no poet, no poem written after 1965 exists in that section. And that that realization happened to me relatively late in the process of making sure, checking my numbers, etc. And rather than going through and, and I just, I just marveled at it, what, what that meant about a post-1965 idea of self and place that meant that the poems wrote differently, were written differently after that. And I'm just curious, since we have all contemporary poets here, uh, what you think m- might be happening in, in that moment and also in, in this moment now and forward in terms of after this anthology, where might we go? After this sort of collection that, yes, this is how we talk or a way we talk, what, what might start to change in the publishing world or in your world as writers? Yeah, you have to keep in mind, and I'm always telling this to students when I teach literature or writing, that our writers, like most of our artists, used to come wild. Uh, But I'd say around 1955, they started to become domesticated. That is, coming out of uh, Masters of Fine Arts programs and uh, being taught uh, to do what people used to do uh, without uh, that kind of formal training. And so that's one of the aspects I think that you have to look at to, to answer that question. Maybe at, at, at this point, maybe this is the moment uh, to... Um, we've, we've been yakking a lot up here. What, what questions, what comments, how might, how might the audience wish to move this conversation forward? Um, talk to us. <laughs> I don't want to steer the um, discussion, but it would be possible for each of you to read a brief selection from the book from, of your own poem. Or, yeah. But if we were going to do that, I would like the, 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 uh, for Carolyn and, and Bob to maybe read a selection of a poem that really speaks to you in the that anthology. Yes. <laughs> I, I could read a part of one that I... I liked uh, by Terrence Hayes because it did remind me of my mother's backyard gardening. And this poem is called Root. I'll just read a part of it. My parents would have had me believe there was no such thing as race there in the wild backyard. Our knees black with store-bought grass and dirt, black as the soil of pastures or of orchards grown above graves, We clawed free 
the stones and filled their beds with soil and covered the soil with sod as if we owned the earth. Are we going in order? The one I picked is a short one. It's by Richard Wright. It's number 543. Let's make a scarecrow. But after we made it, our field grew smaller. I like that one. Haikus. Yeah. No, I like it. Um, okay, so we're reading a poem that we admire. Okay, right? So I'm um, going to read the end of Toy Derricotte's poem, The Minx. Um, and to sound like a fiction writer, you just need to know that um, you know she's it's, 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 she's been thinking about these minks that used to be in her uncle's backyard. They would raise, um, and then um, what would happen to them in the end? In the fall, in fall, they went out in a van. They, the minks, returning sorted, matched, their skins hanging down on huge metal hangers pinned by their mouths. My uncle would take them out when company came and draped them over his arm, the sweetest cargo. He'd blow down the pelts softly, and the hairs would part for his breath and show the shining underlife, which, like the shining of the soul, gives us each character and beauty. Kind of an interesting way at looking at animal carcasses, you know, and speaking of abstraction coming out of something so unnatural. Uh, The Mountains of California, part one. These demonstrations of the one God, green in the springtime, in wintertime too. In all that time, John Muir was out here living with them, breaking himself in on them. I just ride amongst them inside a car, flip the radio off out of respect and out of the feeling that there are more important waves floating in and out of us, mostly through us. The mountains of California. Do I have to say anything? I love all this evidence set up to surround me this way. Mountain, ocean, you just name it. There's a part two, which... uh, I don't know if Camille knew about part two. It was written 25 years after I wrote that. And it, too, is brief. The Mountains of California, part two, which seems to be answering part one. Slow rolling beauty without end or beginning assures our immortality. The way an orchid chorusing her fragrance in waves says no goodbye is possible in this joyous voyage. Nowhere do we feel the fall more fully than in spring, for summer is the mirror winter warrants. Transfigured, life masks and mocks itself, pretending to be dead asleep, as if it cannot help but leaf and flower from itself. As enchantment keeps reaching us, in looks and takes, so the firm and melting faces of the irreducible are always losing their life in its love. Um, I, I like, I'm going to read Robert Hayden's uh, A Plague of Starlings. 
Evenings I hear the workmen fire into the stiff magnolia leaves, routing the starlings, gathered noisy and befouling there. Their scissoring tear like glass coins spilling, breaking. The birds explode into mica sky, raggedly fall to ground rigid in a clench of cold. The spared return when the guns are through to the spoiled trees, like choiceless poor to a dangerous dwelling place, chitter and quarrel in the piercing dark above the killed. Mornings, I pick my way past death's black droppings on campus lawns and streets, the troublesome starlings, frost-salted lie, troublesome still. And if not careful, I shall tread upon carcasses, carcasses when I go mourning now to lecture on what Socrates, the hemlock, our nigh, told sorrowing Phaedo and the rest about the migrating, the migrating habits of the soul. Now, the, the, the Robert Hayden poem, Plague of Starlings, is a, one of my two or three favorite poems in the, uh, in the book. I'm going to read uh, something very short of mine called Look Ahead, Look South. Some of you know that that, that was the, uh, the slogan of the Southern Railroad Company, Look Ahead, Look South. Look ahead, look south, the future. Looking at my bad attitude toward the pastoral and only seeing myself on one of those red dirt roads I'd seen from the air, caught unlucky with night more palpable every minute, that for future. Um, This is a very short poem of mine um, that Camille, I still remember the moment she picked it uh, for for the anthology. It comes from a collection of poems, prose poems that are exactly 31 words. Highly visual, rural winter image seeks lyric poem, 14 to 30 lines, for mutual enrichment and long-term relationship. Image offers frostbitten river and fog-covered fields where the snow seems to rise toward its origins. I'm going to be contrary and read some prose. Each of the sections is introduced by an essay that I either commissioned or that was already existent. And so this is uh, an essay for the section called Growing Out of This Land. And it's just the first paragraph. When I was a girl child... Home was a street called Bluffview, the uppermost block in a terraced neighborhood of Southern Californian homes. In the summer, when I was young and untired and forced to bed before the sun went down, my lullaby was the view my bedroom window afforded of the hills behind my house. Desert oak, prickly pear, eucalyptus, sage. I fell asleep cataloging this place. In the daytime, I would scramble over one bluff and up the hill behind it, playing teacher in the caves my neighbors and I found, scratching lessons in the chalky sand that lined the walls. We played doctor with stethoscopes fashioned from rocks and the necklace stalks of wild mustard. We knew the contours and passages of those hills like we knew the halls and classrooms of our other inside school. Walking down a slope is different than walking on flat land, and each part of my legs recorded required positions until they could move as correctly up and down those bluffs as my tongue might move over the alphabet. 
My body memorized its place in those hills. But even while I lived at the center of everything I knew, everything I knew erased itself. Um, well, I thought I'd read a little piece of, from an essay that ends with a poem. Um, there is a reason why one of the first great works of African-American nature writing is called Cain. It wasn't gold and it wasn't silver that peopled the Americas with Africans and Europeans. It was sugar. Consider the workings of the Atlantic trade in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. Ships set sail from Europe for the rich towns of West Africa with manufactured goods to sell or trade for slaves and then sailed to the West Indies to sell or trade the slaves for the sugar and molasses and rum that was being produced on the new plantations which they brought back to Europe and sold at an enormous profit. Consider this. Sugar was such a valuable commodity that the French did not hesitate to trade all of French Canada to the English. The French foreign minister called Canada a few acres of snow for the islands of Guadalupe, Santa Lucia, whose principal later export was Derek Walcott, and Martinique, which imported a Césaire to France. The first distillery of rum was built in Barbados in 1627, the next in Boston in 1667. Between 1870 and 1917, the single most profitable industry in New York City was the refining of sugar. Jesuits brought sugar cane to Louisiana in 1751. Today, sugar contributes $2 billion to the Louisiana economy. Growers took cane to the Georgia wilderness where some years later Gene Toomer took a job in the summer of 1921 at a segregated black school in a city called Sparta. The town got its name according to the local story because one of the Scots-Irish settlers said that the Creeks fought so hard to save the lands that they were being driven from that they fought like Spartans. Sparta throve as the center for cotton growing when the boll weevil arrived in 1910 and destroyed the cotton. One of the reasons for the urbanization of African Americans, Sparta went broke and reverted to sugarcane, which is why Gene Toomer could write one poem describing the sweet taste of sugar on the lips of the women in Georgia and begin another bow weevils coming and the winter is cold and another that begins wind is in the cane come along well here's the whole thing wind is in the cane come along cane leaves swaying rusty with talk scratching a chorus above the guineas squawk wind is in the cane Come along. Land, Texas, that is where my maternal grandfather's ancestors labored in sugarcane fields. And uh, I grew up in Texas eating imperial sugar, which was originally sugarcane plantation, then became a convict labor camp, and then became industrial sugar production, and I never knew this. If you ever go to Houston, boys, you better walk right. Say you better not stagger. 
And you better not fight, Sheriff Bitzel, he'll arrest you, and he'll carry you down. And you bet your bottom dollar that you're sugar land bound. It's a midnight special, Lead Belly. That was. On that note, on that note, maybe it's time to time to to quit this. Uh, there's a there's a reception in the back. Please don't go. Stay. Talk to the talk to the panelists. Thank you. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.